what you want But if you try sometimes Well, you might find Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBell, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And today we're going to show a couple of video clips. So how do you see video clips on the radio? Well, uh, there are going to be talks from YouTube that uh, you don't have to see. You'll hear them. If you stay at PRN.FM or you're listening live on your telephone at 712-775-6850. But if you switch over to Facebook and then find the Progressive Radio Network channel, you'll be able to see me here in (laughs) the sunny Caribbean. (laughs) Just kidding. I've got a poster in back of me of of, um, tropical flowers. And so you'll be able to, um, let me leave my headphones on, because i got to be able to hear these clips when they come on. So we'll do that in a little while. We'll, we'll uh, have a couple of video clips. And today I want to talk about a book that I'm working on called um, Visionary Creativity in Business. And it's an outgrowth of a book I did earlier, uh, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. And it says right here on the cover, Visionary Creatives swim in the culture of our day. The things they create in art, design, science, technology, business, embody our culture and at the same time pull us into the future. So <clears throat> we look at creative people, at creative businesses. We say, oh, you know, Instagram got it right and Kodak got it wrong or Boy, those people at Google were smart, or Facebook, you know, was the right thing at the right time. But I think we can go far beyond that, and we can actually see what underlies the success of not all, but most new businesses. There will be times when uh, someone's going to manufacture cardboard boxes and do well at it. Actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that might be tied into our contemporary technology as well, because we're suddenly in a world where things are distributed by, you know, you buy on Amazon and it comes from FedEx or UPS or the post office in a cardboard box. But anyway, whether we're uh, we're making cardboard boxes or we're making high-tech new social networking technologies, uh, uh, very often these new businesses occur by being plugged into an emerging ethos. And that's what my book, Visionary Creativity, is about, that, uh, yes, there are creative people and there are creative things, and you can say, you know, that's a creative painting, but there's also the kind of creativity that's plugged into the worldview, ethos, paradigm of the moment, and at the same time drives it forward. And that's what I mean by um, uh, embody our culture and at the same time pull it into the future. So uh, the visionary creatives, which I, what I talk about in my book, 
are part of their culture. They are sensitive to the world in a way that us ordinary mortals are not necessarily. And they uh, feel what's coming. They feel um, a changing world. Very often, they're really bugged it. Other people don't feel it. They, you know, like, don't you get it? And <clears throat> they're driven to create their art, literature, businesses, to put other people in touch with what they're in touch with uh, so that other people can experience it. So you think of uh, Picasso's painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Now, you're online, so you can go look it up <laughs> if you... Uh, Put uh, Picasso and then L-E-S space. It'll pop up if you have trouble spelling uh, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which I do. I don't spell. (laughs) Totally dyslexic. But fortunately, Google can read your mind. At least it can read mine. And you'll see that painting, and it's sort of a proto-cubist painting of, uh, I think it's four four, four women. Uh, that are very angular and violent uh, in their aspect. And uh, Picasso is said to have painted it in response to a Matisse painting. What was the name of that painting? Anyway, a bunch of people um, frolicking in the park, uh, the good something. Uh, And Picasso says... You see a, a peaceful world out there? I don't. <laughs> I see a very different world. And so his painting was a reaction to what was going on and to the times. It's about 1907. So it's already predictive of, you know, a few years later, uh, we're going to get uh, World War One and a kind of uh, European disintegration And he was feeling that in the air and manifested in that painting. So we see in uh, if we look at um, the um, titans of business. In the Renaissance, it was the Medicis in banking. They saw these networks growing out of shipping and its need for financing in the era of the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, oil, steel, uh, an era of raw materials, extracting them and processing and making them available, of shipping people like uh, uh, Carnegie. And then uh, we go to the early 20th century and we get the uh, emergence of retail. You know, we're, we're having an emerging middle class, and so we're having things like uh, Sears Roebuck and and then Macy's and Gimbel's uh, as uh, we start to have consumerism. Uh, people start to buy stuff as a recreation. <laughs> and, um, you know, more people needed things, and we get the uh, Sears catalog, et cetera, and then the Sears stores. And... So then we see things like Google and Facebook. You know, they're a response to an emerging world, uh, one in which, um, oh, shall we say, we're in a world of networked 
fractal computational nodes that are simultaneously generating themselves and each other, a sort of Indra's net of the world. So Indra's net is a parable or image from Hinduism and Buddhism that uh, I first encountered in Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy, and people started seeing this emerging network world. And so you imagine a great net like a fishnet in Indra's palace, and at each intersection of the net is a faceted jewel, and each facet of each jewel reflects all the other jewels. And if you zoom in to the other jewels that are being reflected, you see in each facet of them all the reflections, etc. So it's an image of seeing the world as this intricate network. And I think that people who sort of intuitively experience that uh, are the ones that launch these contemporary companies. And so, for example... There were search engines before Google. Uh, we used, uh, we used, what do we use? Yahoo. And when Google came along, I thought, well, what, what, what do you need that for? We have Yahoo. Well, what Yahoo did was it, um, you're searching for shoes. And <clears throat> it would go to a web page that had the word shoes on it. Well, if you're selling shoes, you'd uh, notice that if you had the word shoes more often, your page would come up higher. So down below the fold, where you wouldn't see it, someone would put in shoes 100 times. <laughs> so their web page would come up first, and someone else would put in 1,000 times. Well, Google had a totally different secret sauce, totally different algorithm. What they did is they said, who else is linked to this page? And how does that reveal what this searcher might actually want? If you're searching on shoes, what do you want? Do you want a definition of shoes? Do you want an encyclopedia article about shoes? Do you want to buy shoes? Do you want to know the history of shoes? Um, You know, it's got to figure out what you want. Well, it sees what websites you then go to, and it sees what other websites are linked to those websites, and in so doing, builds up its algorithm. So it's seeing this interest net. It's seeing how all the the web and the Internet is linked and inter, inter, interconnected and sees how you navigate it, how everybody else navigates it, and from that figures out what you're looking for and serves that up better than other people did, which was what made it successful. So anyway, what I want to talk about today is how people see these emerging worlds and plug into them. So let's start with uh, what I did in my previous book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. And what we'll do is um, I've given some talks on this book, and one of them is reduced down to three minutes. So uh, now they, I have others at 21, is 29 minutes, one's 40-some minutes. So if you're turned on by this three-minute talk, you can go search on uh, YouTube and find uh, less chopped up, less edited ones. But let's listen to what I had to say in just three minutes to explain this book. Nobel talking about my book, Visionary Creativity, How New Worlds Are Born. 
I've been thinking about creativity. I don't think anybody knows what they're talking about. Most of the books are written from people in fields of psychology, sociology. What do they know? Visionary creativity is, is embedded in its culture. Right away, nobody out there knows what culture is. And we're immersed in cultures. Materialists don't know that. I come from a meaning approach. So we live in cultures. Cultures are meaning systems. Cultures create us. And in a virtuous circle, we create our cultures. And visionary creatives change cultures. They're really dangerous people. They bring about totally new worlds. And in so doing, they destroy all worlds. So they're not always favorably looked upon. Visionary creatives swim in the culture of their day and manifest in their work the spirit of their age. The things they create in art, design, science, technology, business, embody that spirit and at the same time pull us into the future. Joseph Campbell writes, myth is the secret opening through its the inexhaustible energies of the cosmos. How do you measure inexhaustible energies in your psychology rat maze experiments? Pour into cultural manifestation. Stephen Wolfram shows us that simple rules build the rich universe in which we live. And then he says, I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be just about six lines. <laughs> this entire universe is generated from six lines of code. I mean, what a way of thinking. So a metaphor to help us think this way. The world and we are clusters of interconnected fractal networks computationally generating themselves and each other. Whole different way of seeing the world. Visionary creatives in our time will be the people who directly experience that. Things they create in art, design, science, technology, business make this world apparent to all of us. How do you become a visionary creative? And we'll turn, of course, to Friedrich Nietzsche, Free Metamorphoses of the Spirit. And Nietzsche says, First, you're a camel. And the camel says, put a load on me. And that is the tradition of your culture and your discipline. You master it as entire culture and then the specifics of your discipline. But then you're a lion. And the lion's job is to fight and destroy a dragon whose name is thou shalt and finally a child. People we respect mastered the existing discipline and then overthrew it. We then become a child, a wheel rolling out of its own center. I hope you enjoy my book. It's rich with stories, examples, anecdotes. Thank you. So um, that's a uh, very brief chopped up version. So if you go on YouTube and put John LaBelle Visionary Creativity 29. <laughs> You'll get the 29-minute version that that was extracted from. So a lot, a lot was taken out of it. But then, uh, You'll also find more. There's one that's about 40 minutes and it's much richer. And so if you go to, um, YouTube and they put in John LaBelle and then click on my channel and then, uh, I have about 100 lectures on there, so then go to playlists, and they're kind of sorted out there. They're, you know, a little bit easier to navigate and find what you might be looking for. And a lot of them are about architecture because I teach architecture at uh, Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and <laughs> Creative Center of the World. And um, 
uh, I record all my lectures and put them online so my students can review them. So there's some on technology. There's a lot of fun stuff and uh, quite a few on architecture. But anyway, so we start with that point of view. And it's a totally different way uh, to approach business. And my argument is, of course, there are business people that do ugly, greedy things to get rich. Uh, a lot of people who do that, uh, not only in business, uh, but there are others that are looking to create things to make a uh, a better world, and we then appreciate their products and reward them uh, if we buy their products. So, uh, thinking that way, if we go back to the 1960s and 70s, it was a time when. Interesting how the world changes. We're now worried about China. Uh, but in the 60s and 70s, it looked like the Japanese were going to take over the world. And, you know, they were uh, first their cameras uh, totally dominated, wiped out the American and threatened the German camera industries. Then they uh, made stereo components and, you know, Sony. And then they started making TVs. And then their automobiles invaded this country. And what are they going to do with all the money they're making? They started buying American real estate. Most famously, they bought Rockefeller Center. That started making people nervous. And then all of a sudden, in the past 20 years, the Japanese have totally stagnated. We don't even think about them anymore. I mean, what have the Japanese done? Uh, see, well, they make great stuff. No, they don't. Samsung does. You don't buy a Sony flat screen TV. You buy a Samsung, and they're Korean. So, you know, you know they don't even uh, imitate the good stuff anymore, much less, and they certainly don't innovate. There's nothing that we've, um, uh, you know, we've um, seen innovated recently that came from Japan. But anyway, uh, we were worried back in the 60s and 70s. And in a in a state of panic, you know, uh, as their automobiles started to flood the market. In 1982, uh, two McKinsey executives, uh, Tom Peters and Robert Waterman, released a book called In Search of Excellence, Lessons from America's Best-Run Companies. And it was a mega bestseller. Um, it's still a book that uh, I'll look at today. And if you want the, of course, today, <laughs> if we're lazy, just go to Google and put it in the search of excellence. You get the whole thing summarized in a, in a minute. I was about to say, uh, you get the book and you open it inside the front cover. It's got uh, a list of the uh, the eight key lessons uh, summarized. But you don't even have to look at the book. You can get them on uh, Wikipedia. But... Uh, what they suggest is a bias for action. In other words, don't sit around planning all the time. Do something. There's a famous phrase, ready, shoot, aim. <laughs> you think, well, shouldn't we aim first? No, do something. And then you'll get feedback. If what you did wasn't right, you'll find out. But just thinking about it, you know, by the time you think it through, someone else will have done it. Uh, second one is stay close to the customer. Uh, pay attention to what your customers need and want, etc. Uh, autonomy and entrepreneurship. In other words, everybody in the company should be an entrepreneur. You want self-starters. You want people who think for themselves. You want people who aren't just sitting there being waiting to be told what to do. 
um, uh, productivity through people, that people are your most important resource, uh, hands-on, value-driven. And there's a famous phrase, MBWA. Sounds like MBA, but it's management by walking around. Uh, <clears throat> I've been in um, uh, I'm School of Architecture at where I teach, Pratt Institute, and I'm mostly on the second and third floor. And I'll say in uh, the 45 years I've been in that building, I've never seen a provost or a president uh, or any of the vice presidents on the second or third floor of my building. How can they run the place when they have no idea what we're doing? <laughs> you know, they'll come to uh, uh, occasionally to a faculty meeting or the dean's office on the first floor, but I've never seen them on the second or third floor. So if you're running a factory, you've got to walk around the factory, see what's going on. So that's uh, hands-on. Stick to the knitting, uh, which is... Uh, do what you know how to do. Don't start branching out into stuff you don't know how to do. And then uh, simple form lean staff. There's a, uh, a famous uh, company came along, Nucor, and it's a steel company, and it totally displaced the the great legacy steel companies. So U.S. Steel, Republic Steel, Bethlehem Steel, they all went bankrupt. And this, um, they would have steel mills that were literally five miles long uh, in uh, the hearts of cities. And Nucor used a new kind of electric furnace, which is the size of a battleship, which is small, uh, and totally blew these other companies out of the, out of the water. Battleship, uh, but part of it was they had like three layers of management. You know, there's a president, the three layers, as opposed to maybe twenty layers in legacy companies, and then uh, simultaneously loose fit uh, priorities. So loose fit, tight fit, meaning that. Uh, have tight priorities. This is what we have to do. But how we do it can be flexible. So, uh, again, this book was immensely important and uh, very influential. And then before I go on, oh, let's let's just get a flavor of it. Uh, Tom Peters, uh, I don't know what Waterman went on to do. But Tom Peters sort of uh, carried the water for this idea. He's been churning out books ever since. He's a management consultant. You'll find him all over. Uh, you'll find him all over YouTube. So let's try another. Uh, let's try another video clip, and let's go to clip two, and we can uh, get a sense of uh, Tom Peters' style. So our goal is to do something radical. Our goal is to make a difference. Uh, and it sounds quite grand. And I will be delighted if it is grand when you look back a year or two years from now. But whatever it is that I do associated with management or what have you uh, goes back to 1966. So that's a half a century ago for all practical purposes. 
Uh, and I often say, and the funny thing about it is I mean it, that I've only learned for sure one thing in the last 50 years. And that one thing is whoever tries the most things wins. It is not about thinking. It is about getting out there. It's about trying. It's about putting together a little prototype in the space of the next half hour. It's about grabbing somebody in the hall by their sweater and pulling them aside and saying, I've been thinking about doing this with this training program. I've been thinking about doing this with this system. And could we just play around with it a little bit? So, you know, I'd love to make this complicated. But, you know, people said to me sometimes, I think they're nuts, but they've been kind enough to say it. They say, you know, you've turned out to be a pretty good speaker. I always have the same answer. You wouldn't believe how much better I am after 3,000 than I was after three. Every speech is an experiment. I have done 3,000 speeches. I have not gotten one right yet relative to what I could have done with the audience, what I believed I wanted to do. But it's it's do it, it's adjust it. Uh, way back in 1978, when my first article appeared in a big magazine uh, called Business Week, we had eight attributes that sort of went on and became in search of excellence. The first one was do it, fix it, try it. Get out there, test it, try it. Make an ass out of yourself. Uh, laugh at yourself. Have fun with the whole thing, but try something now. I'll tell you a couple of other things. Wherever you think you're going today, you will laugh like the Dickens at yourself two years from now at how different a place you ended up in. Uh, fundamentally, the shortest distance between two points has never in the history of humanity been a straight line. It's twists, it's turns, it's going backwards, it's slipping backwards for a long period of time, finding a new friend, testing a new idea. Uh, but it's not at all about straight lines. It's not about ending up where you started heading, fundamentally. You follow your curiosity. You follow the teammates that you're developing. Uh, another thing I'll say about that is, in fact, create your own team. And what, what, I, what I mean by that is just talk to a lot of people. Get the heck out. You don't be a loud mouth. That's not the point. But you've got some stuff. You got things you care about, and grab somebody and have a little bit of, of a chat. Take sit down with them for coffee with coffee for coffee for fifteen minutes. Take them to lunch, w whatever. Just keep building that base of ideas and testing something and twisting something as 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 you go along. I mean, this the fun part about this stuff is you really have no idea where you're going. What's radical? What's radical about it is moving fast enough, testing fast enough, trying fast enough, making enough mistakes, so you end up really, you, you're going to call it a leap, I hope, two years from now. But that leap is going to come from running fast, test, try, fail, find a friend, get, find a friend, that doesn't work out, find another friend, talk to two people, go here, go there. Uh, the President Franklin Roosevelt, of course, was our great World War II president, his wife was more extraordinary than he was. Her name was Eleanor Roosevelt. And Ele Eleanor Roosevelt has one of my two favorite one-liners. And hers was, do one thing every day that scares you. 
Now that is 20 times harder than it sounds. And while I'm on the topic of Eleanor Roosevelt saying, do one thing every day that scares you, the great race driver Mario Andretti had one that I think was almost as good. He said, if things seem under control, you're just not driving (laughs) fast enough. The world we're participating in today is out of control, and you and I had better be always on that nervous edge or we're not going to be employed pretty darn quickly. And I said it was one of my two favorites. The other one comes from the ice hockey player Wayne Gretzky. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. In order to get to that radical place, you got to start in the next five minutes or the next 10 minutes. You got to be able to look back on the day and say, I stepped out a little bit, I talked to somebody a little bit new, I looked at a little bit of subject matter, I tested this little idea just a little bit, uh, go fast, try stuff, test stuff, screw it up, keep on going, uh, and learn to laugh at yourself. Cool. So um, I'm a real fan of those books. Uh, Tom Peters' books, other business books. I'll talk. And you, something you might have gotten from what we just saw is they're not only about business. This is applicable. I mean, if you're a painter, novelist, uh, uh, the exact same thing applies. Uh, this this bias for action, which is one thing he talked about. He talks about a lot of other things. But this is his favorite. You know, do it. Uh, again, ready, shoot, aim. <laughs> As opposed to ready, aim, shoot. And uh, some years ago, I found myself uh, more often going to the business section of the New York Times than to the art section. And maybe this is around the 70s when companies like Apple were emerging. You know, like, what are they doing? What are they doing? What's next? You know, what's next? And there's this whole world, you know, whether it's tech or whatever. And... Uh, So, you know, this is broadly applicable to whatever we're doing, but we're going to unfold this a little bit more as we go along here. And uh, uh, now let's look at another book, and that is uh, 2001, so that this book was 1982, Tom Peters, In Search of Excellence, and there's a book called Good to Great how good companies become great companies. And so this is uh, James Collins, or Jim Collins, and he describes, uh, how many does he have? I don't know, they're not numbered. But he starts with level five leadership. And these are leaders who are humble but driven to do what's best for the company. So as opposed to flamboyant, you know, egomaniacs, Uh, You know, what kind of leaders are we looking for? Uh, First, who, then what? You know, it's first get get together a great team, then decide what the business is going to do. Confront the brutal facts. You know, don't don't, uh, kid yourself. The hedgehog concept. Um, Stick with one thing. That's the hedgehog and the fox from Isaiah Berlin which maybe we'll talk about a show on that someday. Culture of discipline. Uh, be focused on what you're doing. Technology accelerators. Uh, 
use technology to accelerate growth. And what he calls the flywheel effect. Little push, a little push, a little push, and it keeps starts adding up. Now, um, I started getting a little suspicious when I read this book. And look at the first one. Leaders who are humble but are driven for what's best for the company. You know, uh, there's... Um, if you go to an astrologer, they'll say, um, so there's a person in your life, are they blonde or brunette? Or, or there's a person in your life, um, they're a blonde, right? You say, no, they're a brunette. Yeah, right, that's what I thought. Um, in other words, there's a way to, that astrologers can tell you uh, it's going to be a dull day in which something exciting happens. So they're covered no matter what happens. <laughs> we want a leader who's humble but is driven. You know, it's sort of like, uh, wait a minute, which is it? <laughs> and then we say humble. Well, who are the two greatest CEOs of modern times? Well, it used to be Jack Welsh, who uh, created the modern, uh, well, he, he, he forwarded the modern General Electric. And then he got replaced by who? Who's the greatest CEO? Um, Steve Jobs. Apple. Well, I don't think Steve Jobs was humble. <laughs> I think he was an egomaniac. <laughs> so what are we talking about here? Um, so uh, I, I then encountered a really interesting book called The Halo Effect. And um, before I go into it, let's just get a sense of what it's about. It's by a guy named Phil Rosenzweig. So let's uh, just get a sense of him talking, and then we'll talk about the halo effect. So this will be clip four. But first of all, the five is not about personality. So leadership is not about personality. Sure, in fact, some of the greatest leaders we studied had a charisma bypass. <laughs> and we should never confuse charisma with leadership. They're very, very different ideas. Some of them are even odd and eccentric. One of the great chief executives of the last 30 years is Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines. He solves a trademark dispute with an arm wrestling contest. It's just not normal. <laughs> he would talk about wearing a flowered hat and a feathered boa around the office. Just strange. Okay. So it's not personality. The key to the great leaders that we studied was their humility. But it was humility of a very special type. It wasn't humility in just in a weak sense. It was, in fact, just the opposite. It was what I would describe as an absolute, obsessed, burning, compulsive ambition that wasn't about them. An absolute, burning, compulsive ambition for a cause for a company, for the work, for a set of values, not themselves. And an ability to translate that 
ambition, that subjugating themselves to something that is not about them, into a series of decisions, very willful decisions. And this is why I look to Lincoln as our great president in the United States, because he was ambitious first and foremost that the nation must endure, and he had the will to endure the most brutal war in all of our history, with all of it during his tenure, and to lose his life. This is the five. Okay, so my apologies there. That was Jim Collins from Good to Great that we were just talking about. And he's amplifying on uh, one of his uh, key points of these successful companies, level five leadership, leaders who are humble. But let's notice something here. Uh, humble but compulsively ambitious. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> That sort of that sort of uh, uh, can cover anybody, can it? So we begin to wonder about some of these ideas, and um, what I want to do. Let's do one more clip, and then we'll go to uh, a critique of all this. So now this is clip four. Uh, Phil Rosenzweig, and uh, we'll talk in a few minutes about his book, The Halo Effect. So, clip four. So much that has been written recently that's drawn on really good work in cognitive psychology has told us that we're prone to certain predictable errors or biases, and what we should do is find ways to avoid them. And that's absolutely right for some kinds of decisions. But I think it begins to break down when we apply those lessons to other kinds of decisions. One of the kinds of decisions that's been studied a great deal has to do with consumer choice. But if you think about that kind of consumer decision, you can either choose to buy this box or that box, but you're not in a position to actually transform or improve what's inside the box. You just buy this one or that one. There's something else about those decisions. When you go shopping, you're trying to make the best decision for you, for the enjoyment of you and your family, perhaps. Or if you're investing, you want the best returns for yourself. But you're not in competition with other people. So the thing that we've been told to avoid, you know, avoid biases, avoid optimism, avoid overconfidence, makes a lot of sense when I cannot actually transform outcomes. But many decisions, including some of the most consequential decisions we make, are very different. You can tra transform and influence outcomes, and you do need to outperform rivals. I would say... Okay, so um, Rosenzweig wrote a book called The Halo Effect, and I've... Uh, who can read anymore, right? So I listen to them. <laughs> I've got it on. I've got it on my phone. So I've listened to it a couple times, and <clears throat> I got all these books piled next to my bed. I go to bed, and, and I have a choice. I can watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory, or I can read a book. <laughs> I end up watching a rerun of Big Bang Theory. But I've been. Uh, I'm kind of critical of the social sciences, and. Um, Rosenzweig is proposing that better social science can help these studies. And so these, um, both um, uh, Tom Peters and 
uh, Jim Collins studied numerous companies, or did they? Uh, there's a famous quote from there's a famous quote from um, Tom Peters in which he said, "Okay, I admit it, we faked the data." In other words, they knew what they wanted to say. They found some examples and uh, to prove their points. But they didn't really objectively research hundreds of companies. So let's think a little bit about the social sciences, of which uh, many studies show about a half of the studies in social sciences cannot be replicated, uh, which means, uh, you know, sometimes that's the case, but it means the person doing the study maybe did some sloppy work or maybe it's totally fraudulent. So um, let's think a bit. Uh, let's uh, pretend that we're going to write one of these business books. So we're going to select 10 successful companies. Cool. You know, Apple, Google, Facebook, whatever. Uh, but whatever, we're going to have, hopefully, a reasonably objective criteria to decide from uh, the 3,000 companies in the Russell 3000, which ones are successful, and we're going to go study them. And we're going to go to their managers. We're going to ask a question. For example, we're going to ask, is your company customer-focused? Now, we right away got two problems. First one is, what do we mean by customer-focused? Well, hopefully we have a definition. But, uh, you know, it's one of those BS terms that people throw around that probably don't mean anything, but we like to think it does. Uh, But let's put that aside. Now, let's say the managers of all 10 companies say, yes, we're customer focused. Aha. We now know uh, one of the things that companies should be do to be successful. Now, if you know anything about science particularly the social sciences, uh, what's our big error here? What's lacking in what we just did? What's missing? The control group. (laughs) Uh, We should have also, you know, it's like uh, we take uh, a thousand people who smoke cigarettes and we say, oh, gee, you know, eventually they all die. Hmm. Let's take a thousand people who don't smoke cigarettes. Uh, gee, eventually they all die too. <laughs> so uh, that was not a good study. We got to be a lot more careful how we set up this study. I'm not advocating smoking cigarettes, uh, but uh, talking about uh, sloppy studies. And control group is a key one. I remember years ago, back in the 60s, it was discovered that 20% of the men in prison had an extra Y chromosome. That's the male chromosome. And, oh, my God, you know, the male chromosome is kind of what makes you be male, and males are violent. So having an extra chromosome might make you more violent. And the fact that 20% of the men in prison have an extra male chromosome. So they started screening 
um, preschool boys for extra chromosomes to keep an eye on them, extra Y chromosomes. What was wrong with the study? It turned out that 20% of the men walking down the street have an extra Y chromosome. You know, it, it, it was a totally bogus, sloppy study on which really bad social policy was actually implemented. Start screening all these kids and screwing them up. So, okay, so what did we fail to do when we asked 10 successful, the managers of 10 successful companies, are your, is your company customer focused? So we, what if we ask 10 unsuccessful companies, is your company customer focused? And they all said yes. Does that tell us that customer focus is bad? Suppose we go to uh, uh, 100 super successful CEOs and we ask them, did you drink milk as a child? And all 100 said yes. So now we know the first question when we're interviewing potential managers. First question should be, did you drink milk as a child? Or maybe that's totally irrelevant. <laughs> so that's the big problem with these studies where uh, they would um, not have control groups. They would cherry pick uh, their questions. Um, and so... We find out there's this huge uh, problem with uh, these kinds of studies. So, for example, um, let's see. Let me just see where I've, I've got on my notes here. I'm not going to find it, so I'm going to have to remember it. Um, so we find all these um, uh, business books and journals that when a company goes into a new field, like for example, Lego was slowing down as a company and said, you know, we've got these plastic blocks and kids are into tech toys. We should go into tech toys. And it flopped. So they say, those stupid people, they should have stuck to what they uh, knew how to do. Um, and then uh, uh, another time, another company, you know, Lego would go into tech toys and it would be successful. And they say, those brilliant managers, they branched out and uh, took on a new project. So it's very easy to uh, predict a successful company after the fact. What no one has done is predict successful companies before the fact. And if they could... <laughs> they'd buy the stocks and they'd all be rich. So um, um, let's look at an alternative approach uh, to these books. And one of my favorite books of all time, unfortunately it's not on, uh, it's not on audio books, so I have to occasionally actually reread it. Uh, I remember one year, uh, this is Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media, and uh, I uh, I assigned it to my, one of my classes one year, and uh, just a couple of chapters from it. It's a long book. So next week we come in and I say, so what would you think? And one of the students says, that was really difficult. I had to go into another room and turn off the stereo. Uh, <laughs> 
So it's a difficult book. You have to turn off the stereo. But um, the um, one of the lines in the book is, Today, after more than a century of electronic technology, we have extended our central nervous system itself into a global embrace, abolishing both space and time as far as the planet is concerned. Hmm. So, you know, you think about the networks that are created by Facebook, the way Google has this global reach. And the thing is, uh, McLuhan wrote that... uh, uh, Decades before those companies. So, um, McLuhan, let me see. Let me see where I've got this. uh, Here we go. Uh, Let's see. So, McLuhan is looking at our shift in his day from print technology to... um, an era of electronic technology. And the dominant technology that he was dealing with at the time was a TV. But his instincts told him that the personal computer was coming and that it would be changing everything. And so that he realized that electronic media, particularly the computer and the TV, were rewiring our brains, that they were going to be changing everything. One of his uh, famous quotes, he said, the General Electric Company makes a considerable portion of its profits from electric light bulbs, but it has not yet discovered that it is not the light bulb business, but the business of moving information that it's in. So, you know, he said the light bulb is information, light from a light bulb is information without content. Uh, you know, wow. Thus predicting that General Electric would become a digital industrial company. Um, he said that when observing uh, grocery stores, studying different kinds of packaging, he says, that's cool. But, of course, packages will be obsolete in a few people, in a few years. People will want tactile experiences. They'll want to feel the product they're getting, uh, thus predicting uh, again, 30 years in advance, are uh, buying food from uh, bins at Whole Foods. Um, he said that the human family now exists under conditions of a global village. We live in a single constricted space resonant with tribal drums, thus predicting Facebook. He said that even shopping will be done via TV, meaning the home computer, thus predicting Amazon. He said that people will work at home, connected to the corporation, the boss, not by roads or railroads, but by television. They will relay information by closed-circuit two-way TV, which we know as the Internet, uh, and by computer systems, thus predicting the smartphone-connected worker, all decades before these things happen. So how did he do that? Um, how did he predict um, the personal computer a dozen years before it happened, the Internet two dozen years before it happened, and um, the uh, Facebook three dozen years before it happened? How did he predict and describe all this? And uh, the way he did it was through discovering the code 
finding out what it meant, finding out that, okay, this thing has happened. What does it mean? And so the book I'm working on now, Visionary Creativity uh, in Business, is premised on the idea that the world and we are becoming clusters of interconnected fractal networks, computationally generating themselves and each other. And um, so once you understand that, once you see that, you know, is this a good business to go into? Is uh, this a good stock to buy? Well, you never know. Uh, But what you can do is see if uh, the company, the people are in this kind of network, have understand this emerging world. So what was um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's secret? What did he realize at Harvard? What did he realize that, what did every Harvard student want to know? Who's sleeping with whom? (laughs) Who's in what group? Who's in? Who's out? Who's going to the party? Who's invited? Who's not invited? Who's in the network? Who's out of the network? And he created a means to do that. He realized that that's what everybody wants to know. That's what, you know, that everybody is uh, networked, tied together um, uh, or wants to know what's the network doing, what's Indra's net doing, these nets of jewels all reflecting each other, what's the gossip doing, the tribal drums, you know, telling what's current, what's in, what's out, who's doing what, who's network with whom, who's excuse me, sleeping with whom, who's, who's, been, who's been dumped, who's been picked up, uh, who's hooking up. And in the larger sense, that's what Facebook tells us. And so uh, it had existed before. Uh, there was quite a bit of that in the original AOL. But AOL just didn't you know, sort of bring it all together the way Facebook did. And then, as I described before, what is the secret of Google's success? It's secret sauce. Why is it, are its search results better than anyone else's? And, you know, Bing is out there. No, I don't use it. Sometimes I go to Bing to just to see what it's doing different from Google. But what did they do? They looked at how all the uh, <clears throat> websites are connected to all the other websites. And, you know, what happened was um, in what he was doing, uh, Zuckerberg crashed the Harvard computer system and he got suspended. <laughs> but uh, uh, Larry and Sergey at Stanford, when they threatened to crash the uh, Stanford computer system, because what they were doing is they created a web crawler where their computer would go out and look at the entire Internet, which was a little bit smaller than the smaller then 
than it is today and see what site is linked to every other site. And doing that just ate up all the computer power at Stanford. And Stanford just said, hold on. Uh, you know, just to slow down for a couple of days and we'll throw a bunch of more servers on there to, to prop up what you're doing. And so whereas Harvard, uh, you know, threw him out, suspended him, Stanford said, you know, well, I don't know what you're doing, but it's our job to support it. And uh, that's why Stanford, Stanford. Uh, so uh, if we look at these companies, um, and Amazon, what are they really doing? They're selling stuff online. Cool. Okay, great. But, you know, there's some other stuff going on there. Of course, uh, if you want to buy uh, cloud services, you want to put your stuff in the cloud, they're the largest company doing that. So there's something going on. And you notice a lot of the stuff you buy on Amazon isn't just from Amazon. It's other people are selling there. So there's some type of interconnected network that they're building. So anyway, that's what my new book is about, Vision of Creative uh, Creativity and Business. And uh, the reason why I think business is interesting is this stuff goes far beyond it, you know, business. And, you know, people in the arts and technology and all the science uh, are really doing the same thing when they're on the cutting edge. So I'm John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. And uh, we're here on PRN.FM every Monday at uh, 10 a.m. New York time. And catch this show and all of our back shows on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com anytime. See you again next week. Yeah.